Welcome to this UQ Alumni Podcast, Understanding Anxiety with Dr. James Kirby. This podcast uses content originally recorded on the 19th of August 2020 as part of the UQ Alumni Global Leadership Series event program. Dr. James Kirby is a senior lecturer and clinical psychologist at the University of Queensland. He has broad research interests in compassion science and his clinical practice focuses on helping individuals dealing with self-criticism and shame. In this presentation, James discusses anxiety, one of the most common mental health conditions in Australia. He shares the functions of anxiety and helps us to understand and validate our experiences of it. He then takes us through some breathing and compassion exercises that we can use to help manage anxiety. If you would like to get straight to these exercises, skip forward to around 22 minutes. James is intelligent and compassionate and warm, and I hope you enjoy his presentation as much as I did. Here's Dr. James Kirby. So we have what we call this anxious self. And when we have anxiety come on, there's a pattern that goes with it. And firstly, our attention tends to narrow in. So the attention sort of narrows in on the thing that's making us anxious. So anxiety will come in and it will signal to us that there's a danger around. And there will be things like heights or spiders for some. Also, when we're evaluated, uh, so when we're evaluated, that often brings in a lot of anxiety, fear of what you might get or hopefully not get. Uh, We can also be very anxious and worried and concerned about relationships out of fear of rejection um, because that brings a lot of hurt. And, of course, there's also a lot of social media where we can also experience lots of anxiety about whether or not if your posts or comments will be liked or not liked or something will be said about it. On top of that, when we're out and we're socialising, we can take a lot of care in our appearance and be concerned with how we look. And we can sometimes be worried so we can spend extra time on, on how we look and how we present ourselves because we're worried about people laughing at us again. And that kind of ties into that rejection. They're usually a lot of the common ones, the things of evaluation and judgment and and rejection that can uh, underpin a lot of the anxiety that emerges, but we can be anxious about anything. Um, And people will have very different uh, signals that will trigger anxiety, Um, but there are some of those common ones, uh, common ones around rejection or some in particular danger when it comes to perhaps physical. Now, anxiety at its worst can show itself as a panic attack. Now, some of you tonight listening may have experienced a panic attack. They're awful. Um, They include a range of symptoms that emerge very quickly, um, and it can kind of give the impression that you're having a heart attack. So you can have that pounding of the heart, lots of trembling, feels like you can't breathe, for example. You also get this pain in the heart, kind of chest region, which gives the indication that there could be a heart attack. And... This is often a difficult one too, this fear of losing control or or going crazy Um, because often a panic attack will just emerge. It'll just happen. It it can be very difficult sometimes to spot what the trigger was to the the panic attack. And that becomes quite scary for for individuals because the panic attack could happen anywhere. And then you can become fearful of having another panic attack. Now, when people have a panic attack, usually in in therapy, I've I've seen quite a few clients for example, we've had panic attacks. Uh, usually uh, the person will, you know, contact the ambulance, go into hospital, go to emergency, and they'll have a full body check and it will come back that, you know, it wasn't anything physical. It was, a, you know, psychological and it was a panic attack. And 
perhaps it would be useful to go see a psychologist. And usually at that point, and this is the real kicker to all of this, uh, the person can feel very embarrassed about overreacting to the panic. And so when they come to, to therapy to see me, not only are they dealing with the fears of the anxiety and the panic attack coming back, but they're also dealing with the shame that they're experiencing over uh, going to the hospital and, and very worried that others will find out that they aren't able to control, as it were, this anxiety. So anxiety has this sort of superpower that it can just jump to the worst conclusions in a single bound. It can be quite frustrating in that way. Um, but not only can we have a lot of external threats that can trigger the anxiety, we can also have a lot of internal threats as well. Uh, so our brains have the capacity to judge, evaluate and question everything that we're experiencing, even the emotions you're experiencing. So if you start to question how you're thinking and feeling, that brings in doubt, which is connected to anxiety, which is connected to worry. And so we can get ourselves caught up in all sorts of anxious and worry loops um, just within our own minds. So we come from both places, the external world and our internal world, and you can kick off these uh, dreadful anxiety loops. And that's no one's fault. That's just how our minds work. But I've kind of been interchanging between anxiety and fear, and, and they are different. So anxiety is much more associated with uh, future problems. Uh, so they're more drawn out emotional reactions, like a persistent worry. But there can also be a kind of subjective uh, aspect here. It's kind of subjectively experienced as being out of proportion to what the actual threat is, which again, for people who struggle with anxiety, that can be very embarrassing, awkward, um, something they can experience shame about because uh, they quote unquote shouldn't be like that. Um, so it becomes quite tricky for, for, for individuals who do struggle with anxiety. On the flip, fear. Fear is much more about imminent danger. Um, it really builds quickly and intensely. Um, and on top of that, the idea behind it is to get you activated straight away, to get you going, um, to get some kind of body movement. Whereas it, with anxiety, uh, there's no external threat immediate, but we might be thinking about what if that big bad fish, that shark comes out today. And just by thinking about it, we've activated all of our stress response in our bodies. So our brain is not good at discerning, is it an external or internal? Um, if it's internal and you're just generating it in your mind and imagining it, it will kick off the body's response systems as if it were there. Um, and that's why many of us can have our, our most anxious moments uh, through purely our minds as opposed to what's in our environment around us. So the nature of anxiety is such that we all experience it. We will all experience different levels of anxiety. Um, and it has a pattern that comes with it. It'll shape your attention, your thoughts, your physiology, body and behavior. Um, and anxiety can be very helpful. So it warns us of threats and prompts us to take steps to prevent these threats from being uh, overwhelming. Uh, so it might even lead you to do good preparation. Now, some people talk about this idea of an inverted U uh, for anxiety. And that means uh, an inverted U in regards to performance. So if you've got too much anxiety, it won't, won't be, would lead to a very poor performance. If you have no anxiety at all, it might not be a very good performance because um, you, have, you lack the energy and, um, and the excitement that can be very helpful. So it's often spoken about having a moderate level of anxiety can be particularly helpful to get our systems and our bodies going. However, anxiety can also be quite unhelpful for many people. So anxiety has a big avoidance aspect to it. And 
if you're avoiding a lot of things, it can really limit your living. It restricts what you can do. You might not even leave the house out of fear, and that's a, a tragic circumstance. Uh, on top of that, uh, anxiety can be very intense, as we mentioned, with the panic attack. And if the anxiety is intense and it's been around for a long time, many months even, if not years for some, uh, and it stops and restricts you from doing the things that are important to you, uh, then an anxiety disorder may be a possibility. And if you feel that there are some things that resonate strongly with you here, I'm certainly thinking about reaching out uh, to uh, a psychologist or someone uh, in mental health to assist with that can be helpful. Um, our therapies are very good at helping with anxiety, that is for sure. But I suppose this talks all within the setting and context of um, COVID. And as I was trying to put forward, anxiety really comes when we're presented with danger. You don't have to look far uh, to be uh, signalled with danger with COVID. Um, every minute almost there's an update on how the virus is spreading. Uh, unfortunately, Victoria is, of course, going through an awful little period at the moment. And I see New Zealand, it's sort of spiked again there as well. Um, and when we uh, even hop on our just general news sites, um, you know, there, there, there's many instances of danger and warning and we get tally updates on, you know, how many cases there are, um, thankfully how many have recovered, but also how many deaths there have been. And we're just faced with this constantly. We just get pinged, pinged, pinged. Now, the thing is you're already dealing with lots of stress as it is. Uh, those stresses are different for everyone, but, you know, perhaps family stress, work stress. And then if you put on top of that this kind of stress as well, and it's getting pinged a lot, it can really put us on edge. Um, and that's where a lot of tension can come through. And that tension can ripple out and impact our relationships and, and also impact our own uh, mental health and well-being. That's no one's fault. This is just how it works. This is just how it unravels. But it, we, no one anticipated uh, uh, going into 2020 that we would be faced with this pandemic and the issues that it brings. And what we do know about how the pandemic has had an impact on us, because we've had it now for many months, we've been able to collect uh, some solid data letting us know how it has impacted our, our mental health. In Australia, at least, you know, depression and anxiety as disorders um, have increased by 200, 300% uh, compared to non-pandemic times. I mean, that's an extraordinary jump. I mean, that's very significant. And it's not just us. And this is the whole, the whole key facet here. Um, everywhere this is happening. So as a result of this uh, pandemic, uh, in what it's impacted on our lives, um, all of us are experiencing heightened stress and tension and we're seeing double to triple the rates of mental health concerns. And because of the constant uncertainty and uh, that leads to risk always being able to be turned up uh, very sharply, very quickly, you know, something's going to give. So I've touched a little bit now on anxiety and anxiety in the, in the context of COVID. Um, and I've really pointed already a little bit towards what the function of anxiety is, but I just want to expand a little bit more on the function and kind of bring the function into beyond just anxiety, but our threat emotions in general. So to understand emotions really means you have to understand our motivations or what we need as being human. And all animals have motivations or motives or needs. So they seek out things that are important to them. So food, shelter, relationships, status. Uh, statuses can be very important in hierarchical groups, um, reproduction and so on. And 
what happens is emotions guide us as we're moving towards those motivations and goals. So if we're succeeding, bang, we'll feel happiness or we'll be excited by that. Um, if they're being threatened or they're being impeded, that's when we can start to feel anxiety and anger. So those emotions act as signals, letting us know how we're going uh, with our pursuits of these motives. Uh, and you can look at the emotions in isolation, but it can sometimes be more helpful for us to group them in terms of their function. In the work I do and, and others, uh, we group these emotions in terms of three big areas. The first major area is um, on emotions that help uh, keep us protected in times of threat. Uh, the second lot are focused on helping us achieve and do things. And the final lot are those uh, emotions that help us get that sense of peacefulness, contentment, uh, being in a, in a calm place. Uh, so they're the three major emotion regulation systems that I'm going to talk about now. And uh, we've very creatively uh, referred to this as the three circles model. <laughs> so in this three circles model, we firstly have our threat system, the red circle. And in the red circle, it's all about threat self-protect. So as you can imagine, the emotions that go along with this circle are things like uh, anxiety that we've been talking about, uh, fear, uh, anger as well, disgust. And all of these emotions are letting us know that there is potential danger and we'll need to protect ourselves in some way. Now, this is our default setting. You know, this is the one, this is the system that's going to hijack any other system. So we might be busy doing something, uh, but as soon as a little bit of threat comes in, bang, our attention will come straight back to whatever that is, whatever the danger is, going to focus in on that. Uh, so that's what, we, that's what we need it to operate as. Um, in order to keep us alive, of course. So that's the, the red circle. We then have our blue circle. <laughs> and in the blue circle, this is all about wanting and doing things. It's very incentive focused. Uh, and we can want and pursue many different things. A lot of us want and pursue a good house, for example, uh, a partner. Uh, we want to do well at our jobs and get promoted, uh, do well on exams and so on um, to elevate us to status because the higher we are up, the more access to resource we can get as well and that's that can be particularly helpful for us. And when those things are going well, we have those great emotions that come with it. We can have real joy, uh, excitement, uh, satisfaction and they're wonderful pleasant emotions to experience now they're positive and they're very intense positive emotions we can also have less intense emotional responses and these are still positive but they're more about being a sense of calm uh, a sense of safeness which is different to safety so in the red circle you're trying to get to safety because you're threatened you have a safeness you have a freedom just to be to be open uh, and you're content and we call this the the green uh, circle. Very creative again. Now, these systems will regulate each other. Um, and often what we will do in therapy after we've explained this uh, to a client and gone through this with them, um, and we'll ask them, just draw your circles with how much time you spend in it. So just draw them in proportion. And right now, all of us, I suspect, would have a, a very big red circle because of what's going on in the environment around us. And as I mentioned, uh, there are many things in our environment that are just going to kick this red circle off. So COVID's one of them. So COVID is going to kick that red circle off, despite if everything else is going really well, it's still going to impact that red circle. And we don't just hear about once a day, we hear about it many, many times over during the day. So it's continuously activating that red circle. 
But we can also learn that relationships, of course, can be dangerous. Uh, we can learn from a very early age this idea of rejection and not being wanted by others. And that's an archetypal fear that we have as humans, to not be wanted by others or not be uh, seen to be included or feeling like we belong with people um, is a very dangerous thing for us because we rely so heavily on others. Um, so we can become quite scared of other people and you can't help but think as we return back to work and um, hopefully other events, social events, that there might be some of that fear there around the social relating people who are usually the source of comfort have potentially started to become more of a source of fear. And it's interesting to think about those who have had COVID and recovered. Are they seen in a different light, perhaps, than those who never had it? And we're constantly being evaluated, and that constant sense of evaluation can bring a lot of worry in for people, um, and it can constantly be triggered. Um, and we can feel like we're being evaluated constantly on our, our body shape, uh, body appearance, our image. Um, just how our Facebook pages, for example, are a lot of impression management that people can evaluate us on. Now, what can happen is you experience these emotions, these threat emotions, particularly around anxiety. That's what I'm focused on mostly. But then how we relate to that anxiety becomes very important. And so I just have a little kind of uh, analogy to this uh, to, to, to kind of demonstrate how it tends to work. So a zebra, there's nothing a zebra likes to do more than graze in the savannah or graze all day. But if the zebra was to hear a little rustling coming from the bushes, what's the zebra do? Well, it becomes alert and it bolts, right? It's the better safe than sorry principle. And we tend to work and operate in a similar manner. But they bolt and they get to safety in the savannah. And then when they're in safety, what's the zebra do? Well, it goes back to grazing, doing what it loves to do. So if we were to graph the zebra's emotional trajectory across time, what we'll notice is, yes, there will be immediate rush of uh, sympathetic drive or fear or anxiety for the zebra as it tries to get out of harm's way. But then as it's in that safety part of the savannah, the arousal will drop. Now, if you put a human mind in that zebra, if you even put my mind in that zebra, what we tend to do when we get to safety is we tend to go over it. We start to go, oh, my God, did anyone see any lions? How many were there? God, could you imagine being eaten alive? It could be so painful. Apparently they go for the neck and suffocate you. It would just be a tragic way to die. <laughs> and then we might go to sleep and then we might wake up at 2 a.m. Oh, God, what if there's more of them tomorrow? <laughs> and then what can happen, of course, is we can start to criticise ourselves. You idiot, why did you let yourself be seen by these lines? Um, and what that does is it keeps your emotional level elevated for a much longer period of time. This is really important because the external threat's no longer there. It's gone. But what we tend to do is bring that external threat, internalize it, play it over in our minds, and that keeps the body's stress response system constantly going. And then we can start to criticize ourselves. So how we relate to experiencing anxiety, and if we come in with criticism, we just compound it even more. And we can make life very difficult for ourselves. It's no fault of our own. This is just typical of how we will react to different situations. And um, a Stanford biologist, Robert uh, Sapolsky, actually wrote a book on this very uh, issue called uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, indicating that it's our capacity to hold this threat in mind, even when the threats aren't there, that causes us a great deal of uh, physiological stress, but also mental health stress.
So when we have this system operating in, uh, in this way, uh, we've got an over-dominant threat system, we tend to regulate it by trying to push ourselves harder. So just say if you've experienced some kind of um, disappointment, failure or setback, because uh, you're still striving for your goals and the things that are important to you, if you have some kind of setback like that, what do you do? Well, you regulate it with your red circle typically and you start to criticise yourself. So you direct the anger towards yourself um, because that's your most dominant system. So if things are not going as well as we'd like, we can often compound it by getting critical or angry with what we've done or haven't done. And we can even start to call ourselves names and that can make things uh, quite difficult for individuals. You know, I do a lot of work with individuals who struggle with self-criticism and shame. And usually they criticize themselves for the emotions that they're experiencing, uh, for their reactions to stressful events. And it's the criticism that comes in after it that causes all the damage, uh, which is very painful for individuals. And that's because the, the most the common way they regulate their emotions is through, through these two systems. So what I usually do in, in my work, um, and this is work we're doing at the University of Queensland, is we try to take a compassionate orientation. Um, and the compassion orientation is really directed towards developing this green circle. You're never going to be able to get rid of any of those emotions. And you, knowing now that it's there to help protect us from danger, why would you want to get rid of those emotions? But most often when a person comes into therapy and they're really struggling with anxiety, when I ask them, what would you like from therapy? The, the response is usually to get rid of my anxiety. Now that's just something we cannot do. And it's no one's fault for experiencing it. But we just have to understand what the purpose, what the function of it is and start to validate people's reactions to it as opposed to getting into those critical shame cycles that can occur so commonly. So what we try to do is develop that green circle, as I mentioned. So we've talked about anxiety, COVID, and the function of anxiety. Now I just wanted to spend a little bit of time with the time we've got left um, introducing some exercises that could potentially be helpful with your anxiety. Now there's a, hundreds of different strategies that you could use for anxiety, you know, going for a run, uh, reading books, talking to friends. Um, but I'm going to take us through some specific compassion-based exercises that have been shown through the research that not only we've been doing, but others around the world have been shown to be very helpful at reducing uh, your anxiety. Because it's very important. This is something I kind of missed. Your red and blue circles are linked into your sympathetic system, which is all about activating your body for defense, right? To either run away or, or fight, whatever the threat is. Um, so it's very stimulating of the body. Uh, whereas your green circle is much more linked into your parasympathetic system, which is about a, a calming and a groundedness of your body. So what we try to do for uh, individuals is try to strengthen their parasympathetic system so their body can support them in times of stress. Because what happens in times of stress, the mind is racing with thought. And if you're feeling anxious and stressed and you turn to someone and they say to you, just calm down, <laughs> that often doesn't work very well. And just even getting you to think about it from a different perspective is also extremely difficult. So that's why we say let's get into the body first and if we can ground the body, that will start to free up the mind a little bit. But first we just have a little look at the nature of mind and then we do a couple of exercises just looking at your body posture and working on a breathing technique called soothing and breathing. And then we finish uh, with a, just a tiny little bit of compassion because I have to because it's fun. So... 
first thing first is to sort of just do a very quick exercise looking at the nature of mind. So as I say, this is the part where I'm asking you to engage in a practice or a little exercise. For the next 20 seconds, you are to think about absolutely nothing. So your instruction is to think nothing for the next 20 seconds. Okay. What typically happens after that experiment, very brief one, mind you, is we recognize that it's very hard to do nothing. So we, some of you may have distracted yourself towards something. You may have just focused on your breath, for example. Um, others may be saying to themselves, don't think anything, don't think anything. So we learn very quickly when we tell our mind to do something, it can often do the exact opposite. And we can do this again. This time, I don't want you to think of a white polar bear or a pink elephant. You can't think of either of these two uh, creatures, a polar bear or a pink elephant. So for the next 20 seconds, you cannot think of these two images. Okay, well, um, not quite 20 seconds, but again, I suspect some of you would have uh, learned very quickly that it's hard to keep those images out and you, you do think about them, they do come back. Uh, not only that, if you did manage not to think about it during that short period of time, you would have been through some kind of distraction strategy. So, okay, I'm going to focus in on something. Again, it could be the breath, but it could be something else, or you could try to bring something else to front of mind. Matt, you can do that for the short term. That can work a little bit. But to do that and hold that for a longer period of time becomes very difficult. So what we start to notice is what we tell our mind to do, the mind will do the opposite. So if you tell yourself, don't think something, actually what you've done is you've created a rule where it's more likely that you will experience it. But so often in times of stress, we tell ourselves, don't think it, don't worry about it, forget it. But what we're doing is we're increasing the likelihood of it coming back up. And if it does come back up, the thought or whatever it is we're trying to put out of mind, it can actually make things uh, quite difficult for us because when it comes up, we can think to ourselves, oh, what's wrong with me? Why can't I keep it out of mind? So that's a really important part, just recognizing how jumpy the mind is. The next step is then to bring in this little breathing technique. And so this will take about uh, maybe two, two and a half minutes, uh, but I just want to spend just a couple of minutes on uh, this breathing technique um, and it brings in the compassion. Then I'm, then I'm done. So with this breathing technique, what's important with breathing is setting your body posture up. So this is all part of the step two. So the body posture should be one where your feet are flat on the floor, your shoulders are back, your chest, are up, your chest is open. And what this does is this body position helps open up your diaphragm. And then you leave your, your hands just flat on the top of your legs. And this is the position that we want to try to breathe in. Now, if you'd like, and if you can, just move your hands forward, down your legs, over your knees, down your shins, and just try breathing from this position, taking a couple of deep breaths. And then just come back up, have your hands back on the top of your legs, shoulders back, chest open. And just breathing from this position. What's the easier body posture? Well, that one. But it's very important because when we're anxious, our body curls in. 
right, will curl straight in. Uh, whenever we're worried or stressed, the body will curve in, we'll feel a lot of tension in our shoulders, even get tension headaches and get tight jaws. A lot of us will spend a lot of time like me at the computer and again, your body's curled over or just even driving. Now, when your body is in that position, it is unable to activate the diaphragm and you will not see improvements in your parasympathetic system. So that's why we spend a lot of time emphasizing the importance of the body posture so you can engage your diaphragm and strengthen your parasympathetic system, which you can do and which we've found you can do um, in studies here at UQ. So you get into that body posture position. Then we're going to get into a style of breathing where you breathe in for five and out for five. And you want to have a smooth breath. So it's not a hold and then <laughs> collapse of the breath. It's a smooth in, smooth out. Now I'll do counters in for five, but uh, if you find five, five too tricky, uh, stick with the rhythm that works for you. The key is to keep the same pattern. So if you do four in, four out, stay with four, four. If you prefer a slightly longer out breath, that's fine. So you can do a three in, four out or whatever it might be. Just play around with the different patterns for yourself. But then once you've found one, the key is to stay with it. That is when you will see an impact on your parasympathetic system. So I'll just guide us through this exercise now. So just get into your chair, sitting upright, shoulders back, chest open, opening up your diaphragm. And if you'd like, just close your eyes or you can cast your gaze downwards. And to begin, just become aware of your breath. Don't change anything. Just become aware of the coming and going. And now I'm just going to gently bring in a count and just follow this count of breathing. In, two, three, out, two, Three, in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, in, two, three, four, five, out, two, three, four, five. And just go with that pattern for the next minute. Play around with your different breathing patterns, but once you've found one, stay with it. If your mind wanders, just notice what it drifted off to. You can just label it, okay, that's dinner or that's hunger or boredom. And then just come back to your breath. Seeing if you can start to notice a, a slowing down in the body and a grounding in the body. And just to finish this exercise, we'll just do a small compassionate wish. So just bring to mind someone you really care about, 
So just bring to mind and create an image of them in your mind as if you're seeing them of someone you really care about. I suspect there are hundreds of people you care about, but just pick one for this evening. You can do the others later. And just notice how this person who you've picked is trying their best in this world. They have their strong points, their good qualities. They also have the things that don't go so well and they can struggle from time to time. It's just the ebbs and flows of life. And you might like to just wish this person the following compassionate wishes. May you be safe. May you be peaceful. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. Just letting go of that person now. And if you can, just bring yourself into your mind's eye. Just recognizing that you just find yourself here as part of the flow of life. And you have your really strong, good qualities. And you can also experience things that don't go so well. It's just part of the ebbs and flows of life. And just offer yourself those four compassionate wishes. May I be safe. May I be peaceful. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. Just starting to let go of that imagery now. Start to get a better sense of the world around you and the contact your body's making with the chair. We hope you enjoyed hearing from UQ expert Dr James Kirby. To learn more about James's work, search UQ Compassionate Mind Research Group. If this podcast helped you, why not share it with someone you know? My name is Lucy Blair, and thanks for listening.